millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State. Even there, you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 15th. I'm Ezra Wall. This is MPB uh, Think Radio, and you're listening to Mississippi Edition. On today's show, as education funding discussions continue, hear from one group who says the public should have more input. Then public health officials are urging caution, not hysteria, after a deer is found with chronic wasting disease. There's never been a case of chronic wasting disease in people. That's never been documented. And in the book club, we'll look at overcoming race and gender bias in From Liberty to Magnolia. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Education advocates want Mississippi lawmakers to visit poor school districts and listen to communities before they adopt a new funding formula. House Bill 957 would provide $4,800 per student and extra money for categories such as English language learners and special education. But Olita Fitzgerald with the Children's Defense Fund tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the new formula provides less money over time than the current funding plan. MAEP wasn't fully funded But it did lay out a funding strategy that kept up with inflation, that if, you know, it was something that we needed to look forward to, our concern is that doing away with that formula does away with uh, any standard that we could use for quality education, and that what we are doing now is that, uh, that the leadership has decided this is how much money we are going to put in education, and we're going to make the formula fit that amount of money. Uh, we are concerned that the base cost that's used to develop this new funding formula uh, is lower than what MAEP would be. Uh, we have looked at numbers that are out there from the parents' campaign that show over a period of time how much more money, how much less money school districts will receive, even though they're being sold a bill of goods, uh, that things uh, that they'll get more money. We are concerned that there is there's nothing to gauge how well we are doing in the state when it comes to public education. And even though MAEP was never fully funded and the formula that is being considered will over time be less than what MAEP requires, we're also looking at schools that are falling apart. We are looking at school districts whose buildings are leaky. We are looking at schools that don't have technology. We are told about school districts where it's taking children 30 days to pass a test because they don't have enough computers that work. We know that computer technology costs. 
But we cannot be talking about educating children in 2018 without talking about technology. We got school districts all across the Delta where if we're not getting teachers, then we got to look at technology. How do we get that content into a school district if we don't have the bodies? Both in the House and in the Senate, the education chairs say the base at 4,800 starting off is pretty good. They would like to make it higher, but that's what the state has for funding. But being able to add more money on for English as a second language learners, having more money for gifted students and other categories will bump up the funding to schools. Well, I sat through... Uh, the legislative debate in the House uh, led by uh, Chairman Bennett. And there was a whole lot that he didn't know about what was in that formula, and he said, said as much. Uh, but he would not allow any amendments to be brought up on the floor. Well, the amendments were brought up, but they were absolutely uh, voted down by the majority without any discussion. They do not know what's in that formula. That formula is not what Ed Beal had presented them. So they don't know what impact that formula is going to have, and it's disingenuous for them to say so. It is, we're going to cut education funding by any means necessary. Now, we talk about we don't have any money. We will never have any money unless we can beef up the education level of our population and our children so that they are able to be successfully and gainfully employed. We do have money. We're giving it away to people who won't go nowhere if we don't give it to them. Walmart's not going anywhere. These international companies uh, and multinational companies aren't going anywhere. Uh, So we got money. It's just that they are not wanting to spend it on education, and this is nothing new to the state of Mississippi. And we have got to stand up and say these children deserve equitable educations. We can't make a state just based upon the children that are lucky enough to live in high-income high, uh, school districts or high-wealth school districts. What are you going to do? You don't educate kids in the Delta. What is the Delta going to ever be? And Delta legislators that are down here should be ashamed of themselves as they are not fighting for their schools. Children's Defense Fund Regional Director Alita uh, Fitzgerald with our Desiree Frazier. The Senate opted to review the House bill rather than pass a separate education funding bill of their own. Republican Senator Gray Tollison of Oxford chairs the Education Committee in the Senate. He tells our Desiree Frazier schools will receive more funding under the new plan. You know, we've been looking at this new student-weighted formula since last January when we had this report available to us. And basically the main parts of what are in the in House Bill 957 are in this report and that, the way they reach that. So we've had this available to review. I've got it. You can see I've highlighted it. There is a concern, and it's been highlighted, that um, a lot of people don't know what's going on with the bill and they can't get answers. Is there some secrecy around it, not really wanting to say too much about it? The bill's out there for the public to view. It's passed the House. It's, it's available to anybody that wants to review it. And this report kind of gives you a breakdown. I mean, there's not... Now, there may be an issue about how the money affects different districts, but I think the House has put those numbers out to members, and that is something forthcoming in the Senate. And, and the main thing is we have a proposal for a new funding formula that's student-weighted, not as the old formula does, was based on different components. 
that how much was spent in the past. And all it did was incentivize more spending. It was no incentivation, any reason to incentivize cost efficiency. And, and what this report, Ed Bill took and looked at what other states are doing, how they're being innovated in doing a student-weighted formula. Um, but but there, there are parts, additionally in, in MAEP, there is $450 million outside the formula that doesn't go into the formula that is based on the old minimum program of teacher units. That's not an efficient way of distributing money as well. And that's special education money, alternative education. The new formula takes that money and puts it all into this new formula that has the base student cost, that has weights, that increases weights for students at risk, students in poverty, that has a, it takes career and technical education money, uh, the alternative education all puts that towards high school. And then as state money for English language learners, which right now we give no state money for English language learners, and that's a growing student population uh, across the state from DeSoto County down to Pascagoula. And, and you hear schools saying, we need money to hire an English language learner instructor. So uh, there's some good things in this bill. It is a vehicle, changing the vehicle. I understand that there's a separate issue about funding and where you go. Is 4,800 the right number for base student costs? I get that, but at this point, I want to try to switch vehicles because MAPs run its course. It's time for us to adopt a new formula that's more transparent, more simplistic, and easier to be predictable in how much money schools are getting going forward. So is $4,800 enough? I think it is right now, and, and the range that they recommended was 4,600 to 51 or 5,200. And so we're starting at this base, and I can't predict what a legislature is going to do in 2021 or 2020, or those out years. All I can do is promote the idea that this is a good vehicle to going forward. If a legislature in the, for, in the future wants to do something different, that's going to be their decision. But how they can adjust it is is going to be easier to do because – you, you have different levers. You have the lever for base student cost at, for 4800 and then you have this weights. For, for example, if you wanted to increase money for students at risk in poverty, right now the, we're at 1.25. You, you could come and promote the idea, okay, let's go up to 1.3. How much money does that cost? You know, we can do that. So that, those are things that we're setting it up for to be an easier way for us to um, really – target funding for students in our school districts is very student driven of how this new formula works. So what do you say to critics who say $4,800 is just not enough, it's below what fully funding MAEP was, and we need to spend more in education? And I would say I disagree because if you look at the money that's spent in this year compared to where we will go in 2025 full funding, or full phasing in of the new formula, it'll be more money. Republican Senator Gray Tolleson with MPB's Desiree Frazier. The Senate is facing a February 27th deadline to debate the measure. Coming up, public health officials are urging caution, not hysteria, after a deer is found with chronic wasting disease in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on Think Radio. Today's Moment in Black History highlights Coolidge Ball, being the first African-American athlete to play any sport at the University of Mississippi, Coolidge Ball is a trailblazer. I knew it was going to be that way. And uh, when I came here, I knew I was going to make history. My coach, head recruiter at the University of Mississippi at that time, uh, Kenneth Robin, and 
I really never thought about coming to the University of Mississippi until he came down to visit. We salute Coolidge Ball for making a path others could follow. This has been MPB's Moment in Black History. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ezra Wall in for Karen Brown this morning. Public health officials in Mississippi are urging caution following the discovery of a deceased deer with chronic wasting disease. The condition is a neurodegenerative disease affecting the brains of infected deer. It's always fatal. Hunters are being urged not to consume deer meat hunted in the affected areas at this time. Still, as state epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers points out, there has never been a case of chronic wasting disease known to affect humans. He tells MPB's Karen Brown more. There's never been a case of chronic wasting disease in people. That's never been documented. And, you know, chronic wasting disease has been around in a number of states for a number of years, and there's never been a case uh, associated in people. Um, So that's the first thing to to understand. Um, But the second point of that is is that um, if there was a risk of transmission to people, it would come through eating infected deer. And so we're just saying out of a complete abundance of caution that uh, folks who may have harvested a deer within that area of concern, that they consider not eating it. Um, I think the risk is very low, but from our standpoint, we cannot say that the risk is zero. So we just want to make sure that people understand that although we think the risk is low, they should consider um, not eating that deer if they harvest it within one of those areas. This is a neurological disorder, and as I understand, it is similar to mad cow disease. And as we know, people did contract mad cow disease. So even though there is not, and as you said, there is not any case of a human catching this, if it is similar to mad cow, does that increase the risk of people getting this? Well, we do know that there can be a risk from from what you're calling mad cow disease, which is a, a prion disease uh, that, that uh, affects cattle. And there has been some association that uh, people have, have gotten this illness as a result of eating those infected cattle. I guess, you know, the, the thing to really stress is that um, this is also a prion disease that affects these deer. Uh, That's what chronic wasting disease is. But it's important to understand that there's not been any documented human cases uh, uh, as a result of of, uh, contact with these deer or eating these deer. What should hunters look for to determine whether the deer is infected or not? Yeah, you know, the the deer can exhibit some, some abnormal behaviors, and uh, but you can't always tell just by looking at the deer. Just looking at them doesn't necessarily rule out the possibility that the deer is infected because they can not have any symptoms. Well, the deer is uh, it's a fatal disease. So the deer loses weight, becomes emaciated. I mean, there are obvious signs if someone finds a dead deer in the woods, right? Well, there can be some obvious signs, yes. And, and certainly 
we recommend that if there's any obvious signs of illness in a deer, we recommend that, that folks don't eat that deer, right? Um, but because you can't always tell, that's why we're, we're saying consider not eating it from those areas. Is there a way to test the deer, to test the meat once the deer has been harvested to know whether it had this disease? No, there is no test on the meat once it's been harvested. Um, there is some testing that can be done from neurological tissue uh, on the front end, but after the, the deer is harvested and that meat is already collected, there is no test for the meat. And because there is no test that can be done for the meat to rule out this disease, that's why we're saying consider not eating it. Not eating it at all. We're, we're saying consider not eating that deer if it was harvested within that very limited area. And what, what is that area exactly? Well, that's an area that's defined by um, the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, and so I would refer you to their website to look at that. All right. Any other advice for hunters? Is there any risk by touching a deer, or would it only involve consuming parts of that deer? Right now we feel like that if, if um, there was a risk to humans, even though it's very small, if there was a risk to humans, it would be from, from eating, um, eating the deer. Certainly there are parts of the deer that uh, um, may be at higher risk, um, things like uh, the spinal cord or the brain tissue or other neurological tissue or lymph nodes that people are not typically eating. Um, so those would be at higher risk. But, again, I think the take-home messages in all of this are that there's never been a case documented in people. We're just saying exercise some caution and consider not eating that meat if it was harvested within that area. Dr. Paul Byers, the state epidemiologist with the Mississippi Department of Health. Dr. Byers, thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Byers referred you to the wildlife website for more information on uh, where that area is. That website is mdwfp.com. Coming up, the book club looks at overcoming race and gender bias in From Liberty to Magnolia. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The 30th Annual Governor's Arts Awards, the Mississippi Arts Commission's recognition of the state's artistic and cultural heritage, will air on MPB Think Radio and MPB Television on Thursday, February 15th at 8 p.m. This year's ceremony, held at the Old Capitol Building in downtown Jackson, honored five recipients for noteworthy contributions to the arts in the state of Mississippi. On Thursday, February 15th on MPB Think Radio and MPB Television. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ezra Wall. Janice Ellis grew up on a Mississippi cotton farm during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. From there, she encountered racial and gender-based discrimination on her way to earning a Ph.D. and becoming an author and speaker. In her new book, From Liberty to Magnolia, Ellis recounts how she worked to overcome those barriers to her success. She tells MPB's Karen Brown about her early years in rural Mississippi. My dad had a cotton corn farm, but also with seven kids, he grew all of his vegetables and everything. It was a very sheltered life. Going into town was an event, really, on Saturdays because you would spend your days in the fields or going to school and your nights sitting on the porch. 
by moonlight. And so going into the city was an experience for an 11-year-old. My mom started to take me with her every other Saturday when she would go into town to pay bills or get groceries or whatever. At what age did you witness or experience racism? Well, obviously I was bused past a white school to a black school in high school. But I really experienced firsthand the fear that was expressed in my household when the Klan burned a cross on my dad's uh, lawn because he was registering people to vote. And I was about 11 or 12 years old. And then probably the other incidents were when I was 13, my parents went into the city, into Magnolia, to get clothes out of the cleaners on Saturday. So my mom would have a dress to wear to church. And as they came out of the laundry, two cute little white boys spit at them. And my mom and dad were so horrified, they just rushed to the car and they got into the car because I think they just did not want to cause any confrontation at all. And then I remember one day when we were driving to Magnolia, my dad got out, stopped to help one of our neighbors who happened to have been white get a cow back in to a broken fence. And as he was helping my neighbor, a car passed, slowed down, and a little cute, curly, blonde, white, maybe five-year-old little boy yelled, nigger. And so those were sort of the early incidences. In high school, my classmate was Herbert Lee, his father, Herbert Lee Jr. You may know of him. He was featured in the Freedom Riders documentary that was on PBS, well, maybe two or three years ago. He was killed because he sort of headed the initiative with my father. They both were NAACP members to register people to vote. So that was pretty traumatic for me. And so I'd say in my pre-adolescence and teen years is when I really became aware. You grew up during the Civil Rights era and Women's Lib era. Did you face struggles on both sides or were they always merged? Oh, it, oh on both sides. I, I'll give you an example. I helped integrate Millsaps College in 68. I transferred from Tougaloo College there, and it was pretty blatant racism there when kids would get off the sidewalk or wouldn't sit with us in the cafeteria. I actually changed my major. I was a math major because the professor wouldn't look at me when I asked him to help me figure out why I was making false assumptions and proving an abstract theorem. It was blatant racism there, but then when I went to graduate school to work on both my master's and my doctorate, it was both because I went to graduate school six months pregnant with my first son, and I actually had professors tell me that they didn't know how I could complete my Ph.D. and be a mom as well. And one professor actually gave me an example of his wife who had to drop out in getting her master's when their first daughter was born. So I've confronted both. And there are days, quite honestly, during my professional career, when I would walk in for an interview, I didn't know which weight more, you know, whether or not it was a woman walking through the door or a black walking through the door. So it depended on the situation. I would say career-wise, they both came into play, and there were times when one played more than the other. The subtitle of your book is In Search of the American Dream. Did you find it? Well, yes and no. I found it in the sense that I never gave up, and I've had some good jobs. But 
in those jobs, I'll give you a classic example. I worked for a large pharmaceutical company for about six or seven years, and I started as a director, and I negotiated a $70 million contract with one of the largest healthcare providers in the nation. And no matter what I did, I got outstanding performances every quarter, the six years I was there. And you know, I never was promoted. Someone would always come in over me that I had to train. On the one hand, I could say I did not reach the pinnacle of corporate America. I did well despite the racism and sexism that I faced. The book is called From Liberty to Magnolia in Search of the American Dream, and it's written by Janice S. Ellis. Let me say Dr. Janice S. Ellis because you did get your Ph.D. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, for having me. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio all morning long for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. At 10 o'clock, Season Pass. At 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Ezra Wall. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition right here on Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State. Even there, you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. 